Hi and welcome to Book for Lunch, interviews with the world's leading business book authors and thinkers. I'm Susie Daphnis of the Australian Business Women's Network. My guest today is Josh Burnoff, Senior Vice President of Idea Development at Forrester Research and co-author of Groundswell, Winning in a World Transformed by Social Technologies. In this interview, which took place to coincide with the release of the new edition of Groundswell in Australia, we look at how you can harness the power of social technologies and turn the force of customers connecting online to your own advantage. Enjoy this episode of Book for Lunch. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about Groundswell. The book was released in 2007. It is a bestseller, has been. And um, earlier this year, I was actually at a conference in Austin called South by Southwest. I actually saw our author talking about another book that he's released. And um, soon after returning, I heard from the publisher that Groundswell had been updated and was being re-released. So I knew there was an opportunity for us to find out what's new and different. I mean, the book was ahead of its time when it was released. So for it to be updated, um, I wanted to know what was new and what was happening in the Groundswell that we should know about and we should be sharing with our clients. So the premise of the book is that there is a Groundswell and that it's rising amongst your customers, my customers, all of our customers, and that right now the conversations that our customers are having between themselves probably more important than the conversations that we're trying to have with them. So the book looks at how leading companies are gaining insights, generating revenue, saving money and energizing their own customers and how they're doing it. The book is full of examples. We're going to look at a couple of those case studies here today, but I think there's over 65 examples and 25 full case studies in the book. So today we want to look at how to take advantage of what's happening and how we see some of the return on the investment that we may make in these social technologies. The co-author, and it is co-authored by uh, Charlene Lee and Josh Burnoff. We, it's our pleasure to have Josh here joining us from the east coast of the United States. Um, as I said, he is the co-author of this book. He's also uh, the author of another book that maybe he'll get a chance to tell us about uh, a little uh, later on today. He joined Forrester in 1995. In 1996, he created the Technographic Segmentation, a classification of consumers according to how they approach technology. And that is a fascinating tool we'll look at today. He writes for leading publications such as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and he's on a national television news program. Um, it is my great pleasure to have him join us from the US. Josh, do we have you there? Yes, I'm here. I'm uh, happy to talk to you and your audience. Thank you, thank you. Just to start us off, um, for those who haven't perhaps yet read the book, um, tell us why the book came about originally. Well, I... It really was a conjunction of two things. Uh, Charlene Lee, my co-author, had been following the activity uh, of social technologies online for quite a while before then, and this was uh, around 2007, and really gotten very excited about the idea of, of uh, spending more time on it and doing a, a longer work, because what we had seen was that, that too many companies were saying, you know, oh, i got to do Facebook, or back then they were saying, oh, i got to do MySpace, um, without any sort of business sense behind it. Meanwhile, there were uh, a relatively small number of companies that had actually figured out how to accomplish business goals using these technologies. So we wanted to write the first business book that explained how to use social technologies for real business purposes. And uh, the reason I think it took off was it landed at exactly the moment people were saying, hey, maybe this stuff will be useful in a business setting, 
are there any people out there who aren't, you know, uh, flaky guru types, but but people who actually are uh, looking at this from a hard-nosed business perspective, we gave them the case studies and the data right at that moment. And in the uh, uh, four or so years since it was published in 2008, uh, it's almost four years now, uh, uh, we've certainly seen, seen uh, uh, a whole lot more adoption of this among business folks. Right, and uh, you know we're going to be talking a little bit about some of those examples um, here today. And I'm going to give people the definition of, of groundswell, which you have in the book. Um, and that is, as people will see on their screen now, a social trend in which people use technologies to get the things they need from each other rather than from traditional institutions like corporations. So it was happening, and I apologize, it's 2008, not 2007, when the book first came out. And it is still happening. Why is it now? Why in this point in history is the well, groundswell happening? Well, I want to point out some things about this definition, which certainly relate to why it's happening now. Um, notice that we say it is a social trend and not a technology trend. And that's because people have always wanted to connect with each other, whether they were leaning over the back fence and talking to a neighbor or uh, sending letters back and forth or talking on the telephone or the telegraph. And uh, what's happened here with the technologies available uh, that enable people to connect with one another on the internet is a real acceleration of that uh, social desire to connect with one another. Um, I also want to point out that they get the things they need from each other rather than from corporations. Um, a colleague of mine from a while ago, Mary Modal, once uh, wrote in an article, this was in the, in the 90s, that the internet looked like uh, a place where a neutron bomb had hit. You could see all of the structures, but where were all of the people? Well, uh, the advent of everything from blogs to Twitter to uh, discussion forums really enabled people to start to contribute. And it was, for the first time, really enabling, uh, enabling the internet to be a two-way person-to-person kind of environment. And uh, that's really why things are taking off right now. It's the natural tendency of people to connect with one another combined with a technology that really accelerates and supercharges that same trend. And despite that, I still on a daily basis hear organizations say, oh, well, I don't know uh, if I should do something yet. You know, perhaps my competitor is, but I don't know if we should. I saw a video of you where you said the time to jump in is actually over. What did you mean by that? Well, uh, we, we assess uh, people's customers using uh, a tool that you're going to get to called the Social Technographics Profile. And the time for companies to move is when their customers are ready. Now, in, in 2008, we would look at some companies, especially companies that had young customers, and say, you know, you really need to get moving if you're MTV, or you, you really need to get moving if you're, uh, if you're Sprite. You know, you, your customers are there already and talking to each other. And other people who had older customers, say people who were uh, had financial products for pensions, for example, we would say, you know, we're looking at your customers and they're not really there yet. Well, we have now looked at the level of social activity, uh, the percentage of people using it across the globe uh, in Australia, in the UK, in China, in Japan, uh, in Europe, in Brazil, in the United States. And 
uh, the people in their 30s and 40s and 50s and even 60s are starting to come on mm. at a much more rapid pace. The other problem is not only are your customers there, your competitors are almost certainly there. So anyone who has not really begun to engage with their customers in this environment right now is behind. Uh, it also tends to be a little tricky. People often will make uh, first steps and then realize that they've made a mistake and they need to, to adjust. So uh, it's really difficult when your competitor has been out there for two years and you're just getting started to, to figure out how best to do that. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's interesting and we'll kind of revisit this a little bit later in the hour. At this point I want to have a look at the technographics ladder that I mentioned earlier because I find it so very insightful and we're putting a picture of it here. It's a little bit hard uh, to see but we're going to talk you uh, through the ladder or rather Josh is starting at the top uh, with um, and I'll just uh, outline what it says here. So on the top of the ladder the word is creators and then it goes down to uh, critics, collectors, joiners, spectators, inactive. So we're going to start at the very top and could I ask you, uh, Josh, just to take us through these steps on the ladder and what do they mean? Uh, yeah, the, the reason we created this is because uh, it, we needed some way for companies to understand what behaviors their customers were engaging in because there are a lot of different types of behaviors in the groundswell, in, in the social environments online, and not everyone does everything. So the most active behaviors are at the top here. Uh, these are the creators. These are people who publish blogs, uh, publish web pages, upload video or audio, write articles. And uh, it's been interesting as we've uh, surveyed people now over a period of five years on this, uh, this creator group has leveled off at about 25 to 30% of the population in most developed countries. Okay. And that's because not everyone really has got what it, you know, not everyone is a blogger, not everyone is comfortable doing that. Some of the other classifications, the critics are people who react to content, for example, commenting on a blog. The collectors organize the content. We added a new group, uh, which is in the updated version of the book called uh, conversationalists. These are the people who engage in rapid back and forth using things like Twitter and Facebook. The joiners are people who join social networks. The spectators are people who are observing the content. And interestingly, again, as we looked at uh, how things have grown, both the joiner group and the spectators group are trending toward the whole population. Now, these groups overlap, I want to be clear, but we are now getting to where uh, there are about 70% joiners and about 70% spectators in most of these developed countries. So you've got almost universal adoption, but that's because it's a lot easier to look at a YouTube video than it is to be blogging uh, as you would higher up on the ladder. The inactives are the people who are untouched by this. Um, uh, they don't look at this content. They don't join these social networks. And when you look at them as a percentage of the overall online population, that's now down around 15%. I'll also tell you that that, that this is in the United States, but it's similar in Australia. And uh, I, will, I will tell you that not only is it 15%, but uh, no matter what products you've got, those are the people with the least money and the least interest in spending it. So, right. So <laughs> they, may not, they may not be there if you connect in social environments, but they're probably not people you really want to pursue very hard anyway. 
I found this, uh, I spent a lot of time on this part uh, of the book, partly because it was so illuminating to me to say, oh, okay, where are my different customers, but also where do I sit? Um, and I sit in creator, for instance, when it comes to my own organization, but I sit on different points in the ladder on, in, as far as how I connect with other people. So it's not static, is it? No, it isn't. I Certainly people have been moving up the ladder, especially people in their 30s and 40s and 50s now have been moving up as they learn about things and start to engage uh, in a little bit more active kinds of behaviors. Also, uh, you're right. I mean, this is a characteristic of the individual, but the uh, people don't tend to do this about everything. So. You might be a creator when it comes to uh, your favorite hobby like knitting or uh, maybe you have a blog about knitting or you're writing about your your uh, uh, kids and Lego. Uh, or you could very easily be a spectator on, um, say, a, a business community that's, that's talking about strategy. You just don't feel comfortable holding yourself out as an expert, but you're fascinated by what other people are saying. Uh, and this is the key, though, I think, for companies is, as they look at their customers, to recognize that all of these people are elements of the ecosystem. And based on the proportions of your customers that are in these different groups, you may want to reach out to the bloggers that are talking about uh, your market or your products. Or you may find that most of your customers are spectators, and it's your job to create as much content as possible because they're just not ready to work that hard. Mm. I, uh, as I said, I really, I really like this model because there's actually a lot in that one diagram. There was another diagram I came across, and this was actually on the Groundswell website, which pertained to those who are actually in small business, and quite a large part of the Australian Business Women's Network community are small business owners. So I took the opportunity uh, since we had you here to tell us what is it that you know about this particular part uh, of um, the global audience that's perhaps different or worth commenting on? Well, as you can see, uh, the white lines here represent the population average here in the United States and the small business owners over index, that is they are more likely to be spectators um, and critics and creators. and. This means that companies that want to sell to small business uh, certainly would benefit by participating in social environments. One of the companies here in the States that's very good at that is Intuit. I would call it one of the top three companies in uses of social technologies. And uh, that's because they know that small business owners are using these technologies. I, I think if you're talking about small business owners connecting to their own customers, you will find that your customers, unless uh, you have a customer base that's full of uh, people who are old and poor, your customers are there. And what's interesting for, for business owners is that your customers probably have a lot in common. Uh, if, if you're selling, let's say you're uh, uh, selling um, uh, financial planning help, well, your customers are all uh, uh, investors who, who need help from a financial planner. If you are uh, let's say selling graphic design services, then your customers are all the kind of people who hire graphic designers and they will have a lot in common. And uh, for small businesses, this is a great way to connect, to sort of create a community out of your customers who, who assuming you've 
been good to them and they like you are likely to uh, uh, want to connect with each other and also to spread the word about your business to others. One of the things that I've seen in uh, countries with a, a smaller population, and I, as I include um, Australia here especially because uh, not only the size of the population, but because it's, uh, it's so large and you end up with uh, people in uh, each of the individual cities connecting, is that, that the, the active business people are much more likely to know each other. And mm -hmm. this means that this sort of networking help is even more important. Yeah, absolutely true. There's a bloggers conference tomorrow in Melbourne led by a very prominent blogger. He's not only prominent here but quite internationally. And heading to that, and when I look at who's there, it's like, oh, I'm going to know everybody. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't resist here. I have to tell a, a quick story. Please I, do. Uh, do you know Pete Williams um, from Deloitte, Australia? Um, I Actually, funny story, I think that um, someone from Deloitte Williams, I'm not sure if it was him, was speaking yeah. to you when I spoke to you at South by Southwest. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> the funny thing about Pete Williams is that we won these awards, the Forrester Groundswell Awards, and one year a guy named Pete Williams won. He had uh, created uh, an application that enabled uh, people to connect with each other and help out around the, the uh, uh, devastating brush fires that had swept through parts of Australia. And then later on when I was working on uh, writing Empower, the second book, and someone said, oh, you should talk to Deloitte Australia. And uh, I said, oh, okay, let me find out about this example. And they put me in touch with P. Williams. I know it's a common name. Sure enough, it's the same guy who's now using social technologies internally at Deloitte in some fascinating ways. And I thought, what, is there only one interesting business <laughs> in Australia? Whenever I talk to somebody, it's Pete Williams. So I think that's not true. But it just seems like, you know, in the small world department, uh, it was uh, pretty interesting to see. Hey, there he was again. <laughs> Very good. So we only have one Pete Williams in the phone book here. <laughs> All right. Um, we're going to now start to look at tapping into the groundswell. Um, and again, what I really like about this book is that we didn't start at technologies, as you as you mentioned. We start at what I think is a higher level um, because the technology changes so quickly. You have a four-step approach that you call the POST method. And the P-O-S-N-T uh, stand for uh, people, objectives, strategy, and technology. Tell us a little bit about this approach. Uh, I'd be happy to. And I have to say that uh, I've gone all over the world talking about this. And this is the best, really obvious idea I've ever had. <laughs> so, <laughs> so because it's one of those things people look and they're like, oh, yeah. So the, the main problem people have with social technologies is that they start with the technology. So they say, oh, oh, we have to be on Facebook. And it's very interesting. Uh, the first question you ask is why, and they often don't have a very good answer for that. So POST is intended to get you into the discipline of thinking just as you would about any other uh, tool that you use and start with the objectives in mind. The P stands for people, and that relates back to the latter we just saw. You have to start by understanding what your customers or whoever you're trying to reach, what they are comfortable with. And uh, whenever I, I go and talk to a company, I do this for their customers. And I say, all right, your customers here, uh, Mr. Financial Services Company, uh, are very interested in these kinds of things. Or your customers, uh, you know, they're uh, cancer sufferers looking at cancer drugs. 
have these characteristics. Once you know the characteristics of the people, then you can go on to the objectives. Now, the objectives, uh, surprisingly enough, you know, it's like uh, no one would ever say, oh, well, we put a new accounting system in place at our company. Well, why did you do that? Well, because it was really neat and cool. You never hear that. And yet, that is exactly the kind of reasoning that goes on uh, with social applications. Instead, you there are clear objectives, listening to your customers, talking with them, uh, energizing them to talk to other people, uh, supporting them or enabling them to support each other and embracing their ideas. And those objectives are different. Only once you have decided on the objective you want to accomplish can you then go on to the strategy and technology. And the strategy and technology fall out from the uh, people and objectives. I do workshops all the time where we walk people through this and they figure out what the right application is based on uh, what the people they're trying to reach want and what the objectives are that the company is trying to accomplish. Hmm. I want to have a look at these five objectives and I know you mentioned them very, very quickly, but we'll go through each one. And these are the five objectives that companies can pursue um, in the groundswell. And uh, we've got some examples of as well. So the first uh, one is listening. And you say that if you can listen, information actually flows back to you from your customers. Tell us what are we listening for and how are we listening? Well, listening has become uh, very easy to do now. So listening means taking advantage of all of the chatter that's happening out there about your company or your products and trying to understand uh, what people are saying. Uh, if you look, some companies have been very sophisticated. For example, Dell has now a social listening command center. They have uh, big monitors, and they're looking all of the time for people talking about their brand. This can uh, alert them to trends that are happening and also alert them to somebody who's having a problem and is about to tell 10,000 people that, they're, that the Dell product stinks, and they can uh, deliver a high level of service and head that off. Uh, it's also possible to listen with a private community. You can hire a company like Communispace and recruit two or 300 people into a sort of uh, focus group environment. But here it's an ongoing online focus group. And they will uh, answer questions that you've got. And just listening to their chatter often will generate interesting insights as well. Very good. You talked earlier about talking, um, and we're going to look at that one now. We, now and about a two-way conversation, not just shouting our messages out. Um, when um, I was looking at this chapter, uh, there was an example of a website which we've just got a very quick screenshot here called uh, Being Girl. Before we look at what they did so well and why you included them in the book. Um, Let's talk very quickly about talking. Mm -hmm. How does it work ideally? Well, uh, companies are used to talking to their customers. They call it advertising. And the problem with advertising is that, that people don't want to hear it. They don't listen. Uh, it's, a, it's very expensive. Um, this example is a great example because it came out of the Feminine Care Products Division of Procter & Gamble. And their problem is that the adolescent girls who they really want to uh, become interested in their products really don't want to talk about these products any more than anyone else does. Uh, so 
the objective here with talking is to, to have messages that can be spread by your customers. Uh, and this could amount to anything uh, from badges on a Facebook page uh, or a Facebook page they can join up and other people notice that they are. Or in this case, uh, they get their customers uh, talking. Uh, these girls on this environment are t not talking about feminine care products because, of course, that would be awful. No, they're talking about uh, the challenges of, uh, of school and cliques and boys and all of the things that adolescent girls are interested in. And uh, by creating an environment where this talking is taking place, Procter & Gamble actually gains the opportunity to talk to them about things that, that they want to talk to them about. They can answer health questions here that these girls have a lot of health questions, and they can offer samples. And that's really how this has been effective. In fact, Procter & Gamble will tell you that it is four times as effective per dollar spent as advertising is, particularly important for this particular uh, a target market that's so difficult to reach any other way. There are such great examples in the book that when I was reviewing the book and I thought about such terrible examples out there where people aren't doing their research, but we move on. Um, energizing uh, is the next uh, objective here and um, this is one where we're starting to have um, our customers um, do what this, what it says, being energized, but they're also recruiting other people. Uh, the example you used was of an eBags customer. So if you wouldn't mind telling us that story, but also what does it mean to energize your base and how do you go about it? Well, uh, energizing is sort of a flavor of talking in that uh, you do want to get people talking, but here the objective is to get your customers to sell your other customers, mm -hmm. which is sort of amazing. The idea that your customers would sell your other customers, but if you get them excited about your products and you give them the tools, then they can do that. Uh, the purpose of including the eBags example is to show that you can do that as simply as including ratings and reviews on a website. So if you go onto the eBags website, you will see extensive thousands of ratings of all of the products there. And the example we have in the book is of a guy um, named Jim Noble. He's a security consultant. He buys a laptop bag. It breaks. Uh, he calls up eBags and says, you know, this, the zipper broke. That shouldn't have happened. You should fix this. Not only do they fix it, but, uh, you know, they, they took his advice on how to change the design, and this turned him into an advocate. So if you sit down next to this guy on an airplane, he's going to tell you how great eBags is and how great his laptop bag is. Now, to turn your customer into a freelance salesman operating on your own behalf, that's very powerful. And this is one way to do it. Facebook is another uh, way that's very effective for energizing because once you get someone signed up as a Facebook fan, all of their friends see that they became a fan, and that indicates their friends may go check out whatever it is. Uh, in general, the idea is to create opportunities for your happy customers to indicate to the people that they know or, or uh, are acquainted with or are connected with that they like that product. Mm, there's so many opportunities. I get really excited, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have a look at supporting. And um, in this part of the book, uh, 
you talk about enabling customers to support each other, but you also point out that it's actually a great way for organizations to save money. So tell us about supporting. Well, that actually is, is the difference here in supporting is that uh, it, it, it makes the customers happier to get support from each other in many cases, but it also uh, is a cost reduction uh, strategy as opposed to uh, the other ones we've talked about, which are, uh, I mean, if listening is mainly a research strategy and talking and energizing are really revenue generating strategies. So I, uh, in we have examples, again, Dell's uh, very effective is able to get to, to save millions of dollars by having people look on their, uh, their website for answers suggested by other customers. And you'd be amazed how generous people are uh, with sharing their knowledge in an environment like that. The example you're showing here is very interesting. Uh, it relates to people that are having a health crisis. And uh, what happens is if you're in the hospital having a serious problem, your relatives and friends will be calling and saying, well, how are you? Is everything okay? And this actually becomes a huge burden, not just for the poor patients and their families, but also for the nursing staff who are dealing with all of these calls coming in and really ought to be spending their time on the healthcare. Uh, Care Pages allows the patients to actually create a sort of private blogging environment and invite their friends in. And then they could say, you know, here's the update on what's happening with, with Sarah's uh, surgery. Um, and that and reduces their burden of having to keep everyone up to date. And it also reduces the burden on, uh, on the hospital to deal with, with all of those calls coming in. I, I would say at this point that any company that has a, cust a customer service operation that costs a significant amount of money uh, has to, must set up a, a community, a support community, because your customers will be happier as they get support from each other. They don't have to go through the trouble and hassle of waiting on the telephone, and you can save the average cost of, of those calls. Is, uh, tends to be about uh, 10 US dollars per per call and that certainly uh, adds up to all of the avoided calls that happen because they're getting their support from each other. Um, and then taking them one step further, um, you start to talk about embracing where we're helping our customers work with each other, but what they're doing is coming up with ideas to improve our products and services. That just sounds too magical. <laughs> <laughs> well. I, you know, it's funny, people talk about companies like Apple, where they say, well, we don't let customers tell us what company, what products to make, because they don't know what they want, mm. we know better than they do. Well, there are companies like that, but most companies, their customers have an awful lot of good ideas. And uh, we've seen all sorts of companies, Starbucks, the uh, uh, cafe company uh, does this, Dell does it. Um, as you see here, salesforce.com does it. Uh, you basically invite your customers in and have them make suggestions, but not just make suggestions, but have other people uh, vote on which of those suggestions they like best. Mm. And you get some really good ideas in this way. Um, it's funny, this is not completely the same thing, but I'm running a sort of a contest like this within Forrester Research, my company right now, where the employees are making suggestions and voting on suggestions from other people. And some really, really interesting things have come up. Now, 
the company needs to be involved here because the most popular suggestion might be cut your price by 90%. Well, that's, <laughs> that would be a very popular idea, but it's not necessarily the right business idea. But if someone says, I've been using your product, and the thing that bothers me most is that the package always wears out before I've used it up. Gee, we didn't realize we had a problem with the mm -hmm. packaging. That's easy to fix. And then uh, you end up with um, uh, your customers actually having identified where it's possible to make improvements in your own products. Very good. Um, I have a question about that. I'm going to save it till Q&A. Sure. I want to look at, um, this is a new chapter in the book. It wasn't in the original version. And you've dedicated a whole chapter to tapping the groundswell with Twitter. Why the whole dedication of a, of a chapter to, to the wonderful world of Twitter? Well, uh, to be completely fair about it, I think if we were writing the book now, well, first of all, if we were writing the book now, we'd say, geez, there are a thousand books on this. Who needs another one? But, but if, if we were writing the book when Twitter had already become popular, we would have included it in the other chapters. But Twitter has this unique quality that it can be used effectively for all five of the objectives. You can listen to what people are saying in Twitter. You can get them talking about your company with Twitter or energize them to tell others about your company in Twitter. I mean, the retweet is basically a talking and energizing kind of activity. People do uh, get support through Twitter. There are companies like Comcast, the uh, American cable operator, that listen to complaints and reach out and solve people's problems um, that are complaining about the company on Twitter. And then you can even use Twitter to, to uh, engage with people about ideas. So Twitter has the unique quality that it can be used for any of the five objectives. And I think that's what we really wanted to get at in, in putting that new chapter in there. I will say this. Um, we make predictions about technology all of the time at Forrester Research. And that's dangerous because uh, it's the future and you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, when Groundswell came out, we had a prediction in it that Twitter would be successful. And in 2008, uh, that was not at all obvious. And I'm pleased that now we can go back and say, you know what, we were right about that, and, and put a whole chapter in about what to do about it. Very good. And with that, just before we move on, I want to have a look at the five areas. And you've been, um, as you've been speaking, giving the parallel old world term, if you like. But I just wanted to show everyone here, again, just to make it a little more concrete. So when we're talking about listening, uh, and please pipe in at any point, Josh, when we're talking about listening here in Groundswell, that is your research in, you know, the business function yeah, I, as you probably know it. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I, I will pop in here because uh, people need to understand, especially in small business people, that this is the simplest, cheapest thing to do. So I'm sitting here right now and I have um, a tweet deck up, a Twitter tool, and anytime anyone talks about uh, my handle or about Forrester Research or about Groundswell or right now about uh, pound sign book, the hashtag, I can monitor that. And you know, that doesn't cost anything. Uh, if you want to get a little more sophisticated, there's a tool called Radiant 6, still very inexpensive, that, that's a comprehensive monitoring system. So even a small business can afford to be uh, listening for people talking about them. Um, one little hint here, it's probably too late for many of your, your uh, listeners, but it's really good to have a unique name. So 
groundswell is one of those words that is rarely used and therefore the chatter about groundswell is often about this book my name right. also happens to be fairly uh unusual but if if your name is uh, uh sarah jones or or um pete williams you're going to have a difficult time telling what people are talking about you and when they're talking about somebody else. <laughs> well, we know with our book hashtag, other than from 12 noon to 1 p.m. once a month, uh, it's about people booking airfares and whatever, but we watch it right now because <laughs> we use it specifically in the webinars. The next one here, you know, what we know is marketing, is talking, um, sales, is energizing, support is supporting, and development as a business function is embracing. Anything you want to add to this, Josh, before we move on? Well, these, these objectives have held up extremely well, uh, and stuff has started to bleed uh, into one another, so people will sometimes start, uh, a, a, say, a community for support and then be learning from it and uh, doing product development based on the suggestions in there. But it's still a very good idea to start with a particular objective in mind. Uh, if you say, we're going to start an online community to do all of these objectives, then it will fail because you would choose very different features depending on which objective was most important to you. Very good. Let's go ahead now and look at, we're a little later in the book now and organizations have started to use these social technologies, um, look at the objectives and some uh, get to the point of what you call social maturity. Um, the example that we have here is Home Depot. Would you talk us through this concept? Uh, certainly. Uh, well, one of the things that Empowered was about and that this chapter in uh, in Groundswell, the Groundswell update uh, covers is what is the effect on the management of your company when these sorts of technologies get adopted? And to be fair, this is most relevant for large corporations. But what happens when the, the technical support people have a community and the public relations people have a Twitter handle and the, uh, the advertising people are putting their ads on YouTube uh, and uh, the research people have gone to community space and have a private community. You get this overlap, you get into turf battles. Management asks itself, should we have all of this social media under one environment? And uh, by looking at companies that do this, we, we've seen that there's a real evolution. It goes from a testing stage where people are trying out individual applications to a uh, coordinating stage where the people across the organization tend to get together and work with each other um, to a scaling and optimizing stage where they actually try and get efficiencies out of this. One thing that I've found is common, though, is that as companies uh, become more and more successful with this, it's not the right idea to try and put it all into one department. And it's much more effective to have one or two people in the organization that are coordinating this across the whole company, uh, but have the individual departments actually running their own operations. Because there isn't anyone who has a competency in research as well as uh, customer service. It just doesn't tend to be that way. Okay. I remember hearing Charlene Lee speak, and um, then when I reread the book, I heard it again. And it was that in not too long, and you may 
say that we're there now, that the social technology will be like breathing in air. There won't be a us and them of <laughs> the technologies or the way that we use them. Um, and again, I read it's an exciting but scary future when we think about that. And I also heard you say that if by 2012, listen up people, if people are not using their technologies, they will be very last century and it's going to be harder to get up to speed. So a lot in all that. But what would you like to tell us about the ubiquitous groundswell? Well, I, I think that people need to think about this the way that they thought about the internet. Uh, so, I mean, I became an analyst in 1995, and uh, the web was just starting to get off the ground then. And uh, people would say, should we do a website? And we'd say, yeah, yeah, you probably should do a website. Well, now no one would even ask that question, because obviously you should do a website, and it's become the primary way that people connect with you. Uh, so. When you ask, should we be do, using social technologies now, it's like asking in 1995, should we be doing a website? <laughs> uh, it's, this really has to be a competency that every company has. And if your company has uh, 2,000 people in it, then it needs several people dedicated to this. Right. If it has three people in it or one person, then they need to be spending a little bit of their time here because as a communications channel, it is, uh, in many cases, more effective than the channels you're already using, like uh, like local advertising and, um, and email. And uh, that's just as, as any small business person has to develop a competency in connecting with their customers mm -hmm. through email. They need to develop these competencies as well, because this is absolutely becoming part of the way the world works. Mm -hmm. We've got one more section we're going to cover off before Q&A, so if you haven't yet used the opportunity to pose a question, go ahead and use the question box to do that now. Um, I want to look at this idea of groundswell thinking, and you tell us that um, it's not about what you do, it's about how to be. And here I've listed some of the areas um, that were outlined in the book, and that was about being ready to connect, being a good listener, being patient, opportunistic, flexible, collaborative, and humble. I don't know which one to start on. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Well, I, I think that, that uh, being opportunistic and flexible are probably the most uh, important things to start with. Um, I still, it still surprises me uh, the amount of planning that goes into this, especially at large companies. And you know, I hear these people saying, well, we spent six months and we put together an organizational plan for exactly what we're going to do when we launch on Facebook. And then they launch and things don't go the way they expect. I, I, just a really great example here is um, the, the guy we started the book with, who was the uh, head of, of public relations for Sony Corporation, Right, Sony, a huge electronics company. Uh, he started blogging. They they put this long plan together into the blogging, and he started blogging about the things the company thought was interesting. And all of these people poured in and started commenting about their digital cameras because they had just acquired another company's digital camera line. And the people were all nervous and upset about whether they would continue some elements of that. And you can panic. Or at that point, he said, "You know what?" I'm going to get the digital camera guy to come on here and talk about these things because that's what these people want to talk about. It's just a great example of, of 
the fact that that you don't control this, you're not in charge of this. Uh, these people will talk about what they want to talk about, and your job is to sort of go with the flow to become a part of that conversation and to respond to what you're hearing. And if you approach it the way you would a normal marketing channel, which is, you know, here I am, I'm great, this is what's great about me, people are like, yeah. no, sorry, I'm, I'm, we're not really interested in that. We, we're interested in what we're interested in. Very good. Let's take uh, some of these questions uh, that we have. We'll move on to Q&A now. Um, and Jeff uh, has asked, uh, so Josh, if it's too late to start, what do you recommend we do now, question mark, question mark? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, I guess what I'm saying is uh, I don't know if I'd say that it's too late to start. It's never too late to start. Uh, I mean, um, I'm 53 years old, and I started doing regular exercise two years ago. I, I should have started decades ago, but it's much better to start now than to not do it. Right. So, uh, yes, you absolutely can start now. But I think the, the idea that you should try something, think about what your most important objective is. There's no reason not to be listening right now. Anybody can do that and do that cheaply and simply. I, especially if you're in a small business, and there are often environments out there where you can participate without having to do anything, create anything yourself. So uh, if, if you're, a, you know, a, um, uh, say a, um, a graphic designer, there are graphic design uh, communities, and you can make a name for yourself by going in there and commenting, and people are like, oh, yeah, she's, she's really got it on the ball. I wonder who she is. I'm going to have to find out more. So it's not ever really too late to start. It's just too late to wait to start. <laughs> Great. Thank you. A question here from Mike. Um, he says, um, and I'll read the whole thing, what are the dangers of groundswell? For example, you have the right mediums, you've engaged your audience effectively, and then something negative happens. For instance, ongoing strikes, major hardware malfunction. Could the connectivity that you've fostered now blow up in your face as people share their disdain, their negative stories, and exacerbate the existing problem? Well, there is a fallacy inherent in the reasoning you've just described. And the fallacy is that if you don't participate, that these problems won't happen. And there are countless examples. Uh, there's the uh, United Airlines customer whose guitar got, got broken. Uh, they refused to compensate him for it uh, when it was, it was in checked luggage. And so he wrote a song about it, which 10 million people have now heard, called United right. Race Guitars. Mm. There's, there were the people who were upset with uh, Motrin from for their advertising campaign that uh, made fun of mothers who like to carry their children in a sling. Uh, anybody who's got a product that's got a problem, and all of us that create products have problems, has the potential to have things blow up like this. And creating these environments where your customers can talk with you are more likely to enable you to respond quickly enough to head that off than they are to spread the problem more, more broadly. I mean, uh, there was a recent situation in which people came on to Nestle's Facebook page to complain about some of the, the ingredients that they were using and uh, that they were gathered in a way that was uh, harmful to rainforests or something. Mm. And, you know, was the problem that Nestle had a Facebook page? I don't think so. That could happen anywhere. But because it happened on their Facebook page, they at least were in a position to respond to it in that same location. 
And yes, there and the opportunity, as you said, is there for them to respond. I was looking at a, a, a Facebook page of a corporation here, a, you know, a hardware provider, and all that was on their social page was, you know, complaints. There wasn't any connecting with the audience, energizing, giving them great links, you know, so it was I, out of balance. I, I, I have to give the example here of Comcast because um, Comcast has one of the poorest service reputations out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, when their employee, Frank Eliason, came up with the idea of responding to people who were complaining on Twitter, some people thought he was crazy. But as it turns out, if you improve your service reputation from really poor to just somewhat poor, that saves millions and millions of dollars as your customers don't quit. So, so uh, just because people hate you is no reason not to be out here. You just have to <laughs> recognize that that, that that happens and that you're going to be uh, getting a lot of abuse in these environments. Um, Danielle asks a question from the point of view of being in a large organization. She says, can you name a large organization that's doing it well in terms of the structure of the people and the teams within the business who are adopting the technologies and, and is there best practice in terms of structure? Uh, absolutely, and that is what the social media maturity chapter goes into in some detail. Um, the organizations that are doing this well include uh, Dell, um, Intuit, IBM, uh, and uh, Home Depot, the retailer I mentioned, is, is a good example because they're not, you know, you, you might look at a company like IBM and say, well, yeah, that's full of technical wizards. We're not like that. But Home Depot is a company that sells, a retail company that sells, you know, drills and lumber and, and uh, glue and things like that. But uh, what tends to happen is that the company creates a position whose job is to to encourage this kind of activity and share best practices. And when individual groups come up with these ideas, that person then helps them to to see what others have done. They will often have a conference call where everyone gets together uh, in a virtual format and someone might share things that they found out. and division in Australia learns from what happened in the division in India, and the support people learn from what's happening in the research department. So uh, it does tend to be a case of trying to encourage people to share best practices. Um, there are also some boundaries. So for example, uh, if you set up a Twitter handle, and mm -hmm. it's uh, often set up by the public relations department, so the Twitter handle will respond, for example, if there is a publicized report that they want uh, to uh, respond to, that they feel they need to respond to. But once you set up a Twitter handle, regardless of what you think your objective is, people will start to, to bring you customer service problems. Ah, uh, you know, my product broke. And unless the public relations department has a way to turn those over to the support people, then they're going to that'll uh, backfire. So it's, it's those sorts of interactions among departments that enable this to be successful, being thoughtful about allowing people to do their jobs in the context of this new environment. Very good. We probably have time for one, maybe two more questions uh, before we start to wrap up. So let me have a quick look here. Um, Laurel is asking, is there a way to tell where your 
she's used the word followers, but I guess it could be you know site visitors, it could be anyone, uh, come from analyze the demographics so that you know the people you're speaking with? Well, uh, there are some people who will do that for you. I'm not sure whether that feature is included in Radiant 6, but there are probably a dozen of these listening platforms, and some of them have the ability to segment things geographically. Uh, they also amazed me, actually, by – I've talked to the people who do this, and they say that they can um, – they can tell people gender and age overall, you know, in the mm -hmm. aggregate from looking at the comments because they have ways of analyzing natural language. <laughs> um, and, you know, by telling how, by looking at how they spell favorite, they can probably tell whether it's a Brit or an American. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, I noticed that you spell energizing a little differently. I'm like, oh, well, you can tell where they're, co where they're coming from. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, that for any individual, though, it's typically the case that you can find out an awful lot. Uh, you can look them up. And the people at Comcast, for example, have become very good at looking up people on Facebook or Twitter and actually seeing if they can figure out what the customer is. You know, it's always, uh, you know, uh, you know, Julie McGillicuddy from, uh, from Baltimore. Well, you know what? We have her in our customer database, so we, I think we know who that is. Uh, these, uh, so these things are possible, but it takes it takes a little bit of extra technology. You can't just wave your your magic wand over it. I'll also tell you that most uh, Twitter accounts have a location, but uh, they're not dependable. During the uh, the uh, riots that were happening in Iran, everyone switched their location to be Iran. So it's like right, they're not, they're not actually in Iran. They're just protesting. <laughs> Got it, got it. And uh, and very quickly on this one, when we're talking about embracing and we're putting out our ideas because we want to get our community to comment on, are we giving our competitors an opportunity to jump on our ideas and beat us to them? Uh, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but for most companies, it's more important to become better than it is to hide things from the competition. Uh, the other thing that's inherent in that question is the idea that all companies are uh, that compete with each other are the same. So uh, I can tell you that that uh, if people tell Forrester Research that we should improve in a certain way, well, we have competitors, but there are a lot of things that we can do that they can never do. And so they can certainly look at all of this chatter and suggestions, but that's not the same as a product announcement. Um, and yeah, they can't. They can't really do that. I, if you're really nervous about the competitors, then one thing you can do is to create one of these private communities. So, for example, uh, we have the example in the book of a, a pet food company that created a community of pet owners, but it was not open to the public. They recruited these people in, and then, then they had discussions with them, and they felt a little bit more comfortable than that that was not going to be visible. And, you know, if you think about a, a, a market like pet food, you probably are in a position where your competitors uh, have many of the same capabilities that you do. 
Very good. We have a great question from Emma, but we're going to come to it in just a second. I want to do a couple of quick announcements. The first is to let you know that you will, in a few hours, get um, an email from us, and in it will be a link to the recording of today's session, so you can go on back um, and review that. Um, the other thing is I want to let you know about our Book for Lunch event for next month. Um, it is a brand new book. It'll be out like the day of or the day before. Um, the webinar is called Google Plus for Business and it's going to talk about how Google's social network changes everything the book cover says. So the speaker is Chris Brogan. He's very well known in the online uh, environment and uh, he's very practical. I've heard him speak numerous times. Um, very practical speaker. He'll give you lots of how-tos and again a great opportunity for Q&A. I, I can't resist. I know Chris Brogan. He's a great speaker, but he's wrong. Google Plus isn't going to change everything. <laughs> um, we'll be sure to tell him when he joins you, you us. Can, you can tell him I said that too. <laughs> I will, and thank you. He, yeah, he is a great speaker, so we'll see what he has to say. <laughs> um, of course, today's presentation uh, is sponsored by GoToMeeting, um, and we'd love for you to take up a free trial, and if you do that by the 15th of November, you get your first two months free um, following the webinar. The people at GoToMeeting, GoToWebinar will also uh, be in touch to see if they can support you but to implement these technologies in your own uh, business. Um, just before we thank Josh, I do want to ask Emma's question and she wants to know, do we have an example of a large organisation who's using uh, the te uh, technologies and what we've talked about today to actually tap into employee rather than customer feedback? Right. We have many examples of that. The second half yeah. of the book, Empowered, is, is completely about that phenomenon. And uh, one of the main differences is that in these environments, in these internal environments, everyone has to have a real identity. There's no anonymous contributions, and that keeps people from being quite as mischievous as they might be if they were customers. But we've seen insurance companies uh, and uh, companies as big as IBM, and in fact, if people look at my blog, you'll see that uh, my post about how Forrester Research is doing that. So uh, these same techniques can be used internally, and there's a whole host of products that basically turn intranets into social networks uh, for exactly this purpose. Wonderful. Uh, the book is Groundswell, Winning in a World Transformed by Social Technologies. It's the new updated and expanded edition. It's available in all goods bookstores, but you can get it from our friends at Booktopia at a special discounted price. We'll include a link in a follow-up email as well as Josh's details, which you'll also see here on your screen now. I want to thank you all for joining us on behalf of the Australian Business Women's Network. Uh, it's our great pleasure to present Book for Lunch and to bring to you business education from authors who are writing really, really great books. If you're not a member of our community just yet, um, we would like to invite you to join us as a member and we'll send you some information about a special offer when we write to you a little later today. Josh, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I'll leave you with two things. One is uh, you're going to make mistakes if you enter the groundswell, but uh, it's a heck of a lot better to make them now and, and go forward with it. Uh, you have enormous advantages. And the second is I want to go to Australia, so if one of your your listeners here uh, can uh, find a way to, to book me to do that, I'd love to, to visit, so I, I would look forward to, to coming to your country. 
we would love to help facilitate that. So if anyone's listening and they're interested in holding an event here in Australia with Josh Burnoff, then please let him know and let us know. We will do whatever we can um, to make that happen for you. Thanks again for joining us, uh, Josh. And to everybody, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining us for Book for Lunch, interviews with the world's leading business book authors and thinkers. Book for Lunch is presented by the Australian Business Women's Network. For more interviews and details of upcoming Book for Lunch webinars, visit the Australian Business Women's Network website at www.abn.org.au.